Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Chinese Church in Christ South Valley. Uh, it's good to see you all. Um, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, that's the other. That's Dan. He's one of our other pastors. Uh, I'm going to start off this message by asking you all a question. I'm going to take a quick survey among those of you who are gathered. Um, on a scale of one to ten, with one being you are a Christmas Grinch, and ten being you're Dan Matsuoka, like you're super duper into the holiday traditions. Can I get a show of hands if you are above an eight? Like you love Christmas, you're super into it, your family celebrates and presents and Christmas songs like right after Halloween, whatever it might be. Okay, so I see my wife in the back um, and <laughs> up here, yeah, yeah. And Dan, I, I, I mean, uh, how about like maybe like above a six? Above a six, okay. How about like between, what do I have left? Between three and five, somewhere in that range? Any twos? <laughs> Any ones? <laughs> High five, Walter, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, when, when the holiday comes ar come around, um, my family is, like, my dad is very, uh, sorry for using this SAT word, iconoclastic, which means he tears down traditions and has problems with authority, and he, he, thinks, he thinks everyone who practices traditions regularly, they just shut off their brains, and they don't think, they just are part of this herd, and then they sing stuff to make themselves happy, okay? That's my dad. And I have to warn you, uh, today's sermon is not going to be a sentimental sermon. Uh, it's going to be, hopefully, a truthful and encouraging sermon. But for many of you who are holiday lovers, um, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm apologizing, apologizing in advance, but I'm also not apologizing because I kind of take a perverse pleasure in ruining the Christmas spirit for everyone. So with that introduction, <laughs> let me go ahead and read our passage for today, and let me pray. This is Romans chapter 8, verses, uh, I'll do 28 through 32. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Uh, this is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, um, I pray, Father, that as we come to your word, you would be illuminating this text, your truth, uh, to bring us deep, lasting joy and perseverance in whatever struggles and difficulty we're facing. I pray, Lord, you would be revealing uh, your goodness and love to us. I pray you would be revising our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be loved by you, and in doing so, you would give us great hope 
uh, and endurance as we go through whatever trials or suffering we might experience. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so this is, uh, this is from Romans chapter 8, which is one of the great texts of the Bible. In it is so much wonderful, rich theology about many different topics. Uh, the security that believers have in Christ. The assurance from God's Holy Spirit that we're children of God. It's one of the repositories of teaching about the Holy Spirit. It's one of the repositories of teaching about future glory. So these are a lot of like doctrinal theological terms that I want to talk about. And this is something I feel very passionately about. And this is something that I've taken from my favorite preacher, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, which is when it comes to the way that uh, the way we often approach scripture and the Christian life is actually very similar to the way that we approach the holiday season. Uh, because when we go to holidays, a lot of the times we're coming in with our, like, our struggles, we're coming in with our stresses, whatever it might be, and what we want to do more than anything is we want to go somewhere where we can forget all of our problems and just feel good. And so we go to different events to try to capture this feeling. Actually, if you think about it, this is the way many of us live our lives. Dan last week was alluding to our kind of allergic reaction to discomfort, where in the moments where we feel lonely or bad, we take out our phones and we want to feel good about something. And the problem with this is this is actually not how the logic of the gospel works. This is not how the logic of Christmas works. Um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's like, he's British, um, and he died a, a long time ago, and so he fits many of the stereotypes, or he's actually Welsh, but he fits very, many of the stereotypes where he's kind of like, you know, stiff upper lip, and like, you know, he's, but there's something really true and profound that I've been reflecting on. Um, when I talk to many of you about God and about your lives, what I realize is Many of you want God to change your circumstances. And you feel like if only God would change the things you're struggling with, or if only God would remove your feelings of discomfort, that would be good for you, and that would help you grow, and that's what you really need more than anything in the world. Um, but when you come to this passage, God, the Apostle Paul actually paints a very realistic but you could say it's morbid, you could say it's pessimistic, um, picture of what the world is like. And if the message of Christmas has any bearing on reality and real life, Jesus Christ coming to the world has to interact with great suffering and difficulty that we experience and observe in the world. You guys with me? If, if Christmas is simply about feeling good and like kind of shutting off your brain and saying, I don't care like what kind of horrors are going on in the world right now. You think about wars, you think about poverty, you think about human rights violations, you think about injustices. Uh, if you want to just shut off your brain and get in the Christmas spirit, then like, I'm sorry, I'm not the person to help you with that. I'm a huge Grinch, right? But what's so incredible about this passage is it's painting a picture about the despair and hopelessness that it is, the pain and suffering that we experience in this world. And so to diminish that, to pretend like it's not there, is sticking your head in the sand. 
But at the same time, Paul actually says something about the love of God, which completely changes the way we experience this life. The love of God actually has an impact on us, and it develops in us um, a type of character, and it turns us into a type of person. And so this completely changes the way you view suffering. So one way um, people might put this is we often want God to change our life circumstances. And if you come to this passage, what you realize is God never promises to change your life circumstances. What he does promise is to make your life better. So he doesn't make your life circumstances better. He doesn't exempt you from suffering, but he will make your life better. And how is, how is he going to do that? It's through the logic of scripture. It's through the logic of the gospel. Um, I'm going to focus mainly on verse 32. So let's go ahead and see what Paul has to say about the logic of Christmas. And then by looking at God's character, um, we're going to see the implications of that for our lives. And then we'll just spend some time unpacking it. So if you're coming to this place and you're experiencing disappointment with God, you're going through a unique type of suffering right now in this moment, um, I actually hope that this can illuminate something about the way God works in a way that can bring you endurance, help you get through, um, can bring you encouragement, and can bring you hope for the future, okay? Um, when we're thinking about the last year, when we're thinking about the last three years, whatever it might be, uh, there's a lot we need. We, we need to interact with the truth, and we need to meditate on the truth in a way that can help us get through the suffering that we're going through. And it works in a way that's not sentimental. Um, so let me pray real quick, and we'll get into it. Uh, dear Lord, um, I pray that you would be illuminating your word in a way that would change hearts and minds. Um, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to cling to your word, um, that we would see the reason behind your purposes we might not understand, but that we would trust you in whatever we're going through, and that this would bring comfort. Um, let's pray. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, uh, we're going to see a couple of things. Really simple. Uh, we're going to see the character of God and the depths of his love. And then we're going to unpack the argument that Paul is making, which is basically, if you understand, if you understand the truth about Jesus coming to the world, that completely changes your view of the present and the future, okay? So let's go ahead and look at this. Uh, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul is actually making an argument here, and he's asking a rhetorical question. So for those of you in speech and debate or whatever it might be, right, this is something that you do. Rhetorical questions are meant to be evocative, and they're meant, they are basically asserting something that is obvious, right? And so when Paul is saying, okay, let's think for a second. If God did not spare his son, if God gave up his son for us, how will, not, how will God not give us everything? And when you initially come to this passage, if you're a person who's going through particular suffering or difficulty, um, let me tell you what you're thinking when you especially get to that last part where it says, 
uh, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Um, the reason I know what you're thinking is because this is how I approach scripture. Um, I have to start examining my assumptions and I have to start examining what I think Paul means when he says something like that. He's making a promise, he's making a claim, and he's saying God will graciously give us all things. And all, right off the bat, you're like, wait a second, but God has, number one, not exempted me from the suffering I'm going through in my life, right? If, I, if God is so gracious, if God is so good, why doesn't he remove all of the suffering and discomfort in my life? Number two, you're probably thinking, God feels like he's withholding something from me. There might be very good things in your life that you want, and God is not giving them to you. And so how can this promise, how can this scripture be true? If God has given his son, how will he not graciously give us all things? Like, it doesn't really make sense, right? There's a part of you that's doubting, in a sense, and that's actually not bad. Um, but when you come to these points of tension and conflict, when you read the Bible, and the way you're understanding it does not fit with your life circumstances, and you feel that tension. You all, you all know what I mean when you read the Bible. You all know that tension. When you come to something like this, you have all of these doubts. How do we address this? How do we think through this? Um, the first thing I would say is by unpacking the context of this entire uh, the ch chapter, we get a really good sense of what Paul is not saying. What is not Paul not saying when he says, with uh, the Son, he will graciously give us all things? Uh, he is not saying that Christians will have better life circumstances, which I already said. Because if you look on, number one, if you make a brief observation, if you're doing like a scan of the different words that show up, especially in verses 18 through the end of the chapter, some of the words that show up, uh, the sufferings or phrases, the sufferings of this present time. Creation was uh, subjected to futility. Creation will be set free from bondage to corruption. Uh, the whole, whole, the all of creation has been groaning in the pangs of childbirth. We groan inwardly, the spirit groans. There's groaning, there's pain, there's suffering. And then when you look at the end of this passage, uh, in especially verses 35 through the end of the chapter, Paul says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, depth, or sorry, death or life. Uh, all of these things are the context the world that we live in, the reality we have to face. And many people have observed this. In the century that we live in, there, has been, there have been in the history of the world very few civilizations or very few societies that have been uh, more, does, what is what I say in a second? There have been few societies that have been, I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to say, have been more insulated from pain and suffering than we have. What I mean is, uh, we don't have to deal with many of these issues. It's very possible for us to ignore them, for many of us, uh, because of you know, technological advancements, etc. Our lives are very comfortable. And Paul was writing this to a context that was very different, in, in some ways very different than the world we live in now. Uh, Paul was writing to a church who was in the middle of persecution, 
in the middle of famines and wars and uh, like oppression from unjust governments, the, Roman, uh, the Romans, all, all these different things. And so for Paul to write to this audience, he cannot pretend like their issues are not there. He cannot pretend like their problems are not there. He is writing these things into their circumstances, their specific pains and sufferings. And what is he saying? He's saying something really incredible, that despite the things you're going through, despite all of the terrible things that are happening to you, God is still good and God is still gracious. And actually his character is he graciously gives all things. What does he mean by that? Um, he's using an argument from the greater to the lesser. And so let me unpack the first couple of parts of verse 32. He starts off by saying, God, the one who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things, right? What is the logic there? Um, this verse, you know, all the young, they say this one hits different or whatever it might be. This verse hits different. Maybe they don't say that. Okay, sorry, Gracie is like making fun of me because they don't say that anymore. Um, the people between the ages of 24 and 28 say that or used to say that. Um, this one hits me different uh, because, you know, me and Ashley just had a son. And so uh, to just for a second, imagine doing what God has done with Jesus just completely confounds me. Um, when I think about how, like, we raised Toby, it is so heart-wrenching when he cries. It is so heart-wrenching when the very smallest thing goes wrong in his life, and he's disappointed, he's tired, he's hungry, he bonks his head. Like, it's so painful, it's so difficult to deal with that as a parent. And when you think about what Christmas means, what does it mean? It means that God who in one, the, the closest analogy that uh, the writer Paul can use describing the relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son, two, two of the three members of the Trinity, the closest analogy is th that of a father and a son, where a father loves his son and cherishes his son and wants to protect his son from harm and train him up and they, this is actually a million times more powerful than simply my relationship with Toby. Because God and Jesus the Son have been present uh, with each other eternally. And so if you think about the duration, how your relationships kind of age over time, and the longer you know someone, the closer you feel when the relationship is going well. And over time, you think about like the um, married couples, like, I had, a, I had a college friend who was super into like stalking really old elderly married couples because she thought it was super cute, right? You see like a little like old lady and an old man who are sitting on a bench together and they're just like really, they're like 90 and they're like holding hands and you're like, oh, right? I mean, it's because there's something amazing about a relationship that can last for that long. And so the pain of loss when your relationship is, you know, you've known someone for 50 years and then they pass away. What, what, what is that like? It's heartbreaking. But imagine for a second what it would feel like for God the Father to not spare his only son. They've been existing throughout all of eternity. And God loves his son the way a father loves a son. And yet God did not spare Jesus. 
What does it mean when it says God did not spare Jesus? This is where the Christmas story comes into play. And this is where the Christmas story, if it's super sentimental, if it's one of the really like happy sentimental songs, there's something true about those. Uh, but in many, in many cases, those are not painting a picture. When Jesus came into the world, he was entering the world we know, which is full of suffering and disease and death and heartbreak, right? This was God becoming man and being born as a child and going through all of the same suffering that we go through and that we are not, not exempt from. When you look at the great world religions, when you look at any worldview, the, any worldview that holds its muster has to deal with suffering. And so you look at world religions like Buddhism. Buddhism, one of the core tenets of Buddhism is all of life is suffering. And it's true. It's true, right? It's empirically observable. There is so much suffering and difficulty and pain in the world. And we know that. And what's incredible is God, God did not spare his son. He could have kept him. He could have protected him from all of these terrible experiences. And when you think about what Jesus went through, his, so on one hand, you can argue that Jesus did not experience the exact thing you might be going through. Like Jesus didn't experience, I mean, who knows, but did Jesus experience getting laid off? Did Jesus experience not being able to find a tech job in Silicon Valley? No, he didn't experience that. But he has gone through all of the different human experiences we could go through. And honestly, so there are a lot of people who almost talk to me and they complain and they're like, yeah, but Jesus doesn't understand because he hasn't you know, dealt with this. And I'm like, sure, yeah, but have you been crucified? Have you been betrayed and abandoned by all your friends? So all I'm saying is, have you been unjustly, you know, uh, like, what do you call it? Unjustly arrested? I know you haven't. So Jesus hasn't gone through the exact same circumstances as you, but he has experienced the breadth of human experience. He knows what it's like to grieve people passing away. He knows what it's like to be sick, to be weak, to be tired, to be hungry, to experience relational brokenness and pain. He's gone through all of that. And not only that, he went to the cross, he was beaten. Like you can go through all of the, all, like the gospel writers who share the horrible physical and emotional suffering that Jesus has gone through. Um, when he came to this world. And when you think about God, what did God do? He didn't spare his son. Now, as I'm saying all of these things, some of you might be raising an objection, and I want to address it. This is actually a really good objection uh, that many atheists have pointed out, or people who have like issues with Christianity, which is, okay, uh, is God an abusive father then? Is this child abuse? Is it child abuse for God to send Jesus to the cross to die? Even if he's trying to accomplish something good, is that child abuse? Uh, let me tell like a story to kind of illustrate this, why it's not child abuse. Uh, basically, the main reason it's not child abuse is because God is not coercing Jesus into doing anything. Jesus is not a little baby in a manger. Jesus is fully God, fully man, an adult who has his own volition and choice. So he can choose to do whatever he wants. So let me tell you a story. Imagine that there was a father who had a son who became a doctor, and he studied infectious diseases at you know, UCSF, or like a really good medical school. And over the years studying and treating people, he became the leading expert 
in a dangerous disease like Ebola or something. So Ebola is an extraordinarily deadly, contagious disease. Uh, the fatality rates are extraordinarily high. People can die in just like a handful of days. Um, and one day, the father got a letter from his, from his relatives in a small village in Africa where they were from. And the letter said, um, I am so devastated. Our village has got Ebola. And it's going around. Many people in the village are dying and getting hurt. Is there anything you can do to help? Now, what does he do? He says, oh, wait, my son is an infectious disease expert, and he actually has the exact medicine that will help these sick people. But the problem is, in order for him to go into that village, so again, this is not, this is, you just go with me, right? Obviously, there's protective equipment. Obviously, there's a lot of different stuff. There's still danger, right? So pretend he had to risk his life to go into this village to help those people and save those people. There's a huge difference between the father like holding a gun to his son's head and saying, you gotta go or else. Or like, you know, if you really wanna please me, you better go do save those people. Um, and the father saying, son, what would you think about this? Going to this village to save these relatives. They're, they're our family. Don't you love them? Don't you wanna go save them? And the son says what? Of course, I have been training my whole life for this moment. My, this is my calling and vocation in life to help people, to save lives as a doctor. This is the very moment that, in a sense, if he was Christian, like God has made me for, and I'm willing to risk my life for it. That's the difference between divine child abuse and God and Jesus willingly working together to do something good. That's why when it says God did not spare his son, this is something that expresses the depth of God's love for us. If I were to think about doing that with Toby, it's like, I don't want Toby to go anywhere dangerous. I don't want anything bad to happen to him. But God is different than me. And in a sense, when I really think about it, I've posed this question to parents before. Would you rather your kid have a completely safe life where they don't experience any pain or suffering and become a moral disaster, like, just like a total jerk? Or would you rather them go through suffering and become someone who's good, like someone who has, a, has good character and does good with their life? Um, and that's a dumb question because it's a hypothetical. And let me just answer you the question. No one can be insulated from suffering. So what's the point of asking that question? It's not even possible. It's not even possible for me as a parent. If I had a gazillion dollars, I couldn't protect Toby from suffering the suffering of life. It's impossible. We all gotta go through it. And so rather than insulate our kids, rather than insulate ourselves, rather than want God to remove all of our bad circumstances, um, are we willing to accept and come to grips with the fact that God actually uses suffering for our good? And you see this in verse 28 where it says, God works all things together for the good of those who... So this is a famous passage that many people put on Instagram, and they don't talk about the context of suffering. When Paul says, God works together all things for our good, if you're a believer, what is he saying? When you go to verse 35, he is saying, you Christians are being persecuted and killed for your faith. 
You're going through famine, you're going through disease, you're going through shipwreck. And Paul is speaking from personal experience where his life was characterized by tremendous suffering. And he says basically, the all things that God works good in your lives include tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Um, what is this saying? God is so incredible that whatever you're suffering, the bad things that are happening in your life, bad, just because they can produce a good effect, it doesn't mean they're not horrible and terrible and bad. Do you know what I mean by that? Like some people say, like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it can even go so far, people can even go so far to say, it's actually good. All that bad stuff that's happening to you, all the obstacles you have in your life, just be thankful for them because it makes you stronger. So if you're depressed or if you're sick or if you're disabled, whatever it is, it makes you stronger. No, that's not at all what this is saying. It's actually very nuanced where it's saying these are terrible things. These are terrible things. War, distress, famine, tribulation, terrible things. But God is so powerful and he has so much foresight and love that he can actually work these things together for your good. You get what I'm saying? God redeems suffering. He doesn't remove suffering, he redeems it. And that means that your suffering in your life can actually have meaning. And that actually allows you to develop endurance where you can get through these hardships, not because they're good, you grieve them, you lament them, you pray about it, you ask for help, you weep. Because the life is terrible. There's so many things that are hard in life. And yet, at the same time, you are not moved. What Paul says is you can be steadfast. You can stick with God. You can not, not be completely destroyed by the suffering that hits your life. In fact, God actually turns this suffering into something beautiful. Uh, there's a book by an uh, author, pastor named Scott Sauls. And I haven't read the book, but the title is really great. The title is, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. You guys get that? Beautiful people don't just happen. Um, would you rather, again, another would you rather, your question. Would you rather your, your kid go through suffering but become someone who's really, really great? Someone whose life is beautiful and meaningful and they can benefit so many different people? Would you rather them go through suffering or would you rather them be insulated from suffering and become a jerk? Beautiful people don't just happen. And in this book, I listened to an interview about him. Um, he tells the stories of people who go through extraordinary hardship and suffering. There might be some of you who have gone through such unspeakable hardship and suffering that you deserve a place in this book. But like, these are all of the worst things, like all of the worst things you can imagine like losing loved ones, children passing away, terrible, terrible diseases, diagnosis, diagnoses, um, becoming quadriplegic. Like, these are the types of suffering that he's talking about. But these are stories and these are interviews with these people who basically say the same thing. They say, my suffering and pain is terrible. And yet, at no point have I said to God, you have not been there for me, you have not been working and redeeming the suffering and turning it to something good. And when you talk to these people who have gone through suffering, they're deep. You know what I mean by that, right? These people are deep because they can empathize with you when you're going through your sufferings in a way that uh, 
there are, there are psychiatrists who actually talk about this. They say when people are raised in families where their families are just perfect, everything is healthy, they have great relationships, communication, they don't fight, blah, blah, or when they fight, they work out the conflict through talking, all that stuff. These people cannot understand what it's like to be raised in a dysfunctional family. They just don't get it. They just can't understand it. They've been insulated from suffering in a way that makes them shallow. I'm not trying to be mean, but it makes them shallow. They don't have the breadth of human experience. They don't know what it's like to go through difficulty. But when people go through difficulty with God, what happens? They become beautiful people. They become wise people and deep people. And so this is the plan. When you look at the context of Romans 8, this is the plan that God has. God is basically saying, I am not going to remove suffering from your life. I'm not going to remove bad circumstances. Um, if all Christians never had any bad circumstances and all non-Christians had all the worst circumstances, would God be a good God? No, he's just playing favorites. Instead, you know, Matthew says, or Luke says, um, God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. God is merciful to everyone. And it's really incredible. So God doesn't exempt Christians from suffering for, for a number of reasons, because he's fair, but also because he actually uses suffering for our good and to turn us into beautiful, good, deep people. And so this actually makes a huge difference when you're going through it. I don't know what you guys are going through, but if you're going through it right now, I just want to say to you, um, it's, it's not going to be easy, but if you believe God and you trust him and you think through this logic, it actually can be like an anchor for you, okay? And again, I'm like a relatively emotional person. On my Myers-Briggs, uh, like I took it a long time ago, I was like right in the middle for thinking and feeling. I don't know if you guys even know what that is. But um, I think in reality, I'm probably more on the feeling spectrum, which means I am affected emotionally by things. The way I feel about stuff really impacts my ability to go through life. And so, you know, I've struggled with depression in the past. Um, I still struggle with depression every once in a while. When, I'm, when I feel really bad, it's hard for me to do stuff, right? And so, to some degree, I've experienced going through difficult things. It might not be this, to the same degree as you, but what I've found is this thing actually works. What helps me get through is not simply trying to change the way I feel. Because, so, like, this is what I do. I feel bad, so therefore I try to self-medicate using, like, video games or, like, watch shows or, like, eat Taco Bell or exercise or whatever it might be. There are all of these ways we self-medicate because I want my feelings to go away, my bad feelings to go away. But that doesn't actually help me get through. What really helps me get through is to meditate on the truth of God and to think about who he is as a person. If, here's the logic again. If God did not spare his son, but he gave him up on our behalf so that we could be freed from sin and death, so that we could be rescued out of our pride and our brokenness, our mess, like we have so many issues. And until you come to the realization that your life has issues, you haven't even begun to grow. You know what I mean by that, right? You have to come to, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I have like character flaws, I have sinful tendencies, I'm prideful and self-centered, 
And once you come to that and have that realization, then you can say, God, help me, and I need your help. And then once you realize that, once you are humbled by God, suffering becomes useful and good in your life. Where you could say, okay, why is God sending me all of these terrible circumstances? I, we're, me and Ashley have been going through some really frustrating, annoying stuff, like the parking brake. There's like a little parking brake button on my car that broke, and that cost a bunch of money, and it, the, the car wouldn't move. And then our dog diarrheaed all over the place. And then, you know, like I had all of these stomach issues, and then like, there's just like a bunch, are like literally two times in the last like week or two, I've been in the middle of my shower and then we have a tankless hot water heater and the tankless hot water heater turns off and it's like 30 degrees in the, in the morning and it's like ice cold freezing water all over me. And I'm just like, why God, why are you doing this to me? And it, it almost feels like we have a target on our back sometimes where it's like, God, what is going on? Why are you like sending these things? Part of it is because nothing is exempt. We're not exempt from these sufferings. We're not exempt. We're not exempt from Toby going through difficulties. But at the same time, coming to grips with this, I can say, I can respond to it differently, where I say, look, God, I don't like this. I wish you would just make things better for me, and we pray that the circumstances would change. But if this is what you want, you know what? Can you use this to turn me into the person you want me to be? That's a way different attitude in suffering because we want a pipe dream. Uh, I, I have lots of friends, you know, like, so here's one example. Um, working at a big tech company, great benefits, RSUs, everything, lots of money, um, lots of perks. And everyone on the outside would say, oh, because you're at this tech company, you must be really happy with your job. You talk to people, they're never happy with their job. And I, like one friend, this will always impact me, like, like complaining about the job, and it's like, if only I would move to this other team, then I would be happy. They go to the other team, still not happy. And they're like, if only I could change this circumstance in my life, and that circumstance, you know, like if my house was better, if my family was nicer, if I had more money. Like you, the problem with that men mentality is once you achieve it, what's next? Once you achieve every circumstance that you ever imagined, which, I mean, how, how many of us actually do that? Very, very few. You talk to those people, and they're still miserable. Because we, we think that circumstances will give us peace, but they don't. Instead, what gives us peace is to know God and to trust him and to realize that whatever we're going through, whatever we're going through, he's with us, he's working it for good, and he's using our affliction. In Corinthians, there's a really beautiful verse where he says, like the God of all comforts who comforts in our, who, okay, I'm paraphrasing it. The God of all comforts who comforts us in our affliction will use our affliction to bring comfort to those who are afflicted in the same way. That was a, that was a mouthful. What he's saying is when you are going through suffering and you experience God's comfort, and it's not removing the circumstance necessarily. Because if, if I could say to you, every time you pray, all of your circumstances would be fixed, like everyone would want to come to our church. If I had the power to give that promise, everyone would want that, right? But it's just not true. Instead, what I can say is because of God's character, because he didn't withhold his son, because he gave his most cherished object to us, his precious beloved son, 
who he loves. He didn't spare him the pain and suffering of the cross. And because Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to go to the, willing to go to the cross, how, if God is for you, who can be against you? The purposes, no matter what happens in your life, they cannot frustrate the purposes of God for you to know and love him and become like Christ. And so there are lots of different analogies that people use for this. Let me use one. Uh, C.S. Lewis gives, this is actually uh, C.S. Lewis borrowing from another author. Um, Imagine yourself as a living house. Initially, uh, God, so you are a living house and God is kind of doing some renovations, right? Initially, he fixes the plumbing, and again, because we like, yeah, anyway. He starts fixing the plumbing, fixing the roof, making some superficial changes, new paint job, And this whole time, this is what the Christian life is like. This whole time you're like, wow, yeah, this is great. Makes sense. You know, I understand what God's doing. Um, I had like a a cussing problem, right? I would just, I'm cussing up a storm, right? And God really needs to work on that. And so God is like sanctifying you and like changing your cussing problem. But then God starts tearing down walls in your life. And there's, all of a sudden there's a giant hole in the roof. And you're like, and this is us going through these moments of terrible suffering and pain where they often produce painful self-knowledge. What I mean is you go through suffering and you realize I'm not that great of a person. I thought I was strong. I thought I was loving. I thought I was a good father. Wait till you go through dog diarrhea and then see what happens to your, like see what happens to your your character. Do you fall apart? Do you start trying to like self-medicate with whatever it might be? Um, And so all of a sudden, there's a hole in your roof, and God's tearing down the walls. And you're like, God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this in my life? What are you trying to accomplish? And you can't understand it. But then you realize, wait a second. I was like a three-bedroom, two-bath house. You know know what I mean? Like I was was like a house, like a a perfect regular house. But God is actually creating me into something far grander than I could possibly imagine. God is renovating my tiny little self into a palace, into something like him, into something beautiful and grand. He's making a beautiful life out of my little self, not because of anything that I've done, not because I'm so great, but because he is such an amazing renovator of the heart. And so this is the hope we have. This is how we have perseverance And this is why Christmas, let's go back to Christmas. This is why Christmas matters. Because if Jesus came into the world, then this is the plan of God. When Jesus was dying on the cross, this was a great teacher. He was a miracle worker. Everyone was looking at him dying on the cross and saying, what good could God possibly bring out of this terrible death and suffering? This injustice, this innocent man being unjustly condemned to death. What good could God bring out of it? And what you don't realize, what the crowd didn't realize, what the disciples didn't realize, is the very worst thing that ever happened is the God is, through it, is redeeming and achieving the greatest thing, the greatest good on our behalf that has ever happened. God didn't spare him from the cross. Jesus didn't run away from the cross, but he went to the cross to die for us, for our sins, so we could have eternal life, so we could be reconciled to God. He died on our behalf, and if that's how God feels about you, if that's God, how God loves you, it doesn't mean your bad things are good. It doesn't mean your suffering is good. But you can know God can redeem it, 
God can make meaning out of it, the worst times in your life, you're struggling already. You're suffering already. Those worst times in your life are actually the very moments where if you accept God's will and your circumstances, he will produce the most growth in your life through those moments. And he will accomplish it if God did that for Jesus. And honestly, Jesus was perfectly innocent. We're not perfectly innocent. God needs to work on our sin, all our different issues. Um, if God can do that with Jesus, he will do that with us. If God is for you, who can be against you? If all the purposes and power and intelligence of God is renovating your heart, how can you be discouraged? How can you be anxious about the future? Because God is making you into a person who is wiser and has more perseverance and is better able to help those around you and to give and to serve, that's the hope that you have in suffering. God's not, God never promises it's gonna all go away, but he promises he will be with you and he will graciously give you all things. The final thing I wanna say is, at the very last part of this verse, it says, will he not graciously give us all things? Um, the other way you can talk about this verse and make sense of it is um, by understanding a doctrine called the already and not yet, or the, the doctrine of basically saying um, there is future glory for us. God doesn't say that in this, God, Jesus says in this life you will have tribulation, in this life you will have suffering. But he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And so he's saying, like, look, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. I'm not gonna be sentimental about it. Life is still suffering. Life is still so difficult. But what's so incredible is in this verse, uh, Paul is pointing towards this future event. He's pointing towards this future event where in Revelation it says, God will wipe every single tear from your eyes. What does that mean? It means every single suffering that you've gone through or injustice that your loved one has gone through, every single time that you've felt abandonment or betrayal or depression, God sees that exact moment, he knows exactly how you're feeling, and he promises he will bring you comfort and make it worth it, and he will restore what's been lost. And this is really mysterious, but this is, this is what the Bible promises. Um, when we lose loved ones, they're not forever lost. If you know Christ, you will see them again, and you will have the joy of that reunion. And so even though you're going through this grief and loss and tragedy and pain and suffering, it won't be like that forever. You don't have to wait. Um, you, you're not forever separated from them. And again, I know what I'm saying, and I know the people who are like, I know you, like the people you've lost and the people I've lost. Um, this is the hope we have, the future glory where God will make everything right. That's what we look forward to. That's what gives us hope. That what's, that's what gives us endurance. And how does this strike our feelings? Use your mind. Think through these truths. Recognize if God gave up his most precious son for you, he's not holding anything back. If I was to give you my most precious object, I was like, here, have my car. You know, it's the most expensive thing I own. Um, and then the next day you're like, Daniel, I don't have like a dollar to buy like Taco Bell. Can you give me a dollar? Uh, what would I say? Like, of course, I love you. I'm going to give that to you. 
God did not spare his only son. And if he didn't spare his son, if he gave up his son for your good, for your future, for your present, doesn't that anchor you? Doesn't that help you know that God is with you and for you? And this is the love of God, the depths of the love of God for you. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, um, I thank you that you did not spare your son, but you gave him up for us so that we could have assurance and security in a world of suffering and pain and difficulty. I pray that we would treasure these truths in our hearts. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be witnessing to our spirit that we are your children and making these truths real to us in a way that can help us to trust you through whatever uncertainty or suffering or difficulty we're going through. I pray you would give us hope for, your, for our lives, knowing that you are at work, you are renovating us, and then, Lord, I pray we would bow before you and submit to your um, plan for our lives in ways that would give us joy and uh, pers- persistence through whatever we're facing. Um, We thank you for Jesus. We love you so much. Um, Please apply these things to our hearts in a way that would change us. In Jesus' name, amen.